0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A for the second time. For the first time in many years, I just recorded this entire Q&A with no audio, which is ironic, because the last time that happened was a weekly podcast years ago, and ever since, every time I record both these and the side-by-side shots, after the first one, I'll always listen back to make sure there's no noise. And every single time I would listen with headphones, sometimes that would be a good way to pick up different noise, especially when I was in the city and so much background noise. Now that I have really nice studio monitors, then I've just been using those. And this is legitimately the first time I have not checked in years. And I think I was just overwhelmed. I'm in the middle of shooting a whole of the project, half my equipment, half other people's here, and I got to get it out uh, within a reasonable time because uh, people are coming to pick up their equipment. So I think I rushed through it and now here we are. So... If any of these answers are shorter than usual or if I sound a little bit exasperated during it, it is not at all because of the questions or the wonderful people who ask them. It's just because my dumbass has to do it all over again from scratch. So my sincere apologies to anybody. I imagine this week's is not going to be as, uh, as normal as the rest of them. So uh, let's jump in and I'll try to do my best with audio. <laughs> uh, let's go. First up, over on Floatplane, Kirko was able to pick up an awesome BVM20F1E monitor, a really nice Sony BVM monitor, and it had two input cards in the back, one labeled Analog and Digital, and the other labeled just Analog. So they were wondering if that really mattered when hooking up component or RGB video, and no. All that digital means is that one of those cards most likely could also accept an HD SDI source as well, which is probably not something you'll mess with, but it's always neat to have an option. You never know what weird nerdy retro gaming scenario we'll come up with. So the only suggestions are if you're looking to hook up both types of signals that you would find in retro gaming, component and RGB, the most common of the higher end signals, I would take the analog only one and connect your SCART to BNC adapter. And when I say analog only, the the input that's RGBS that says only analog on it, and connect the SCART to BNC adapter to that one. And then I would program in the BVM's menu that to be, let's just say, input number one, four by three, RGBS, and that'll be set to that one. And then the next one, analog slash digital, that's where I would connect component video Only because, if there's ever a chance of you adding an SDI source, for whatever crazy reason, whatever experiment, you could probably even just run it through the same component video switch. I've never tried it, but it's the same signal in the middle with a shielded ground around it type of cable as standard RCA, so that should work. You would obviously just have to change the settings around. But for now, I would configure input button number two as component video 4 by 3 and then input number three as component video 16 by nine. That way, if you're putting a component video source through it, like your Wii that's widescreen or watching movies or something, you can just press that button rather than have to go in and reconfigure an entire input. Also, you were uh, wanted to know how to use the BNC outputs. So on most BVMs, well, let me back up. On most PVMs, you'll see ins and outs. And if you don't leave anything connected to the outputs, it works normal. But you can, if you wanted to, connect another monitor. With almost all BVMs, there are a few exceptions, you need 75-ohm termination, because these were designed to give you full control with everything you could imagine. And so that basically means that if you're only plugging one thing into that one card, you have everything connected to the inputs, then 75-ohm terminators connected to the outputs. I have a uh... When they kind of look exactly like these RCA to BNC connectors, but there's no connector on it. It's just flat. Um, and if you're having one input, you or if you're just using the inputs, you need to put these on the outputs. Or if you have the output going to another monitor, that acts as the termination. So, for example, let's say you, were, you wanted your component video consoles hooked up to both the BVM and another TV with component video input... All you would have to do in that case is just connect the BVMs outs to the ends of the consumer grade TV, and it does not have to be powered on as long as it's plugged in. That provides the correct seventy five ohm termination. It's not. It's you probably shouldn't run your BVMs without them, but if you ever accidentally powered it up and the color, everything was way too bright, that's probably what it is. You just need the termination, or maybe one of the three cables kind of popped out of your consumer grade TV and you know that's what that is. So any other uh, any other questions let me know Congrats on an awesome BVM by the way. Over on the YouTube support service, Scott 140 said they picked up a whole bunch of Xbox and Xbox 360 controllers that were broken with the thought of fixing them up and reselling them and probably keeping a couple for themselves. So they want to know what's a quick and easy way to test these controllers for button and thumbstick functionality? Two answers. First, the easiest is plug it into a PC and just use standard PC controller test software. The original Xbox has an adapter. I think the 360 controllers also has a cable you could buy for it. So that that should work. You would still need to test the wireless functionality of the 360. Um, So just connecting it to your 360 might be able to be all you need for that. However, if you had said, hey, I'm looking to become the controller repair person. This is my job now, side job, whatever. I would strongly recommend that controller tester from consoles for you. I don't know if they have an Xbox one yet, but I'm sure they'd probably be working on it because that's exactly what this is designed for. Game stores, repair shops, whatever else, rather than having to go through load up an original Xbox load up, their, you know, a game. Use all the controls in the game. I guess even you could say with a PC. Xbox is probably the bad example because you do have the PC option. But other consoles, you could plug it right into this tester, and you have all the functionality right there on a tiny little screen. So, for you personally, I think a PC should be fine. But in, unless you think this is going to be like a new hobby, and then look into the consoles for your test kit, I'll leave a link. Um, also, unrelated do i know if there'll be any opportunity for people who go to the retro world expo to sell or trade stuff they have a bunch of stuff they'd like to sell but are too lazy to sell individually on ebay so the short answer is no but some some more context if you have enough stuff to fill a small booth I would rent a booth. There should maybe still be a couple available, and then you just sit there for two days and kind of hang out, talk to people, um, you know, tell them tell them you're uh, friends with the, the retro RGB section and they'll stick you kind of near where we're going to be. And if there's if there's booths still open, and that's a, a great way to just hang out, sell some stuff. You at the very least should probably be able to pay for the booth, which isn't too expensive. So that's an option, but if you're just talking about I have one bags full of stuff you're really probably looking for more swap meet style things. And a lot of game stores offer these. Retro Games Plus, who's the owner is Chris, the same person who also works uh, as part of the Retro World Expo team. Chris does meetups at each of the Retro World stores every couple of months that's exactly this. You bring a small folding table, small bag worth of stuff, and you just kind of hang out and trade and sell and whatever else. Was that the last one? It was a lot of fun. So uh, I hung out with Ed for a bit there. That was cool. Met, met a bunch of friends that I haven't seen in a while. So it, it was that is probably a good, good thing to do. However, that said, I have like a bag of small things that I'm going to be bringing with me and just kind of leaving the hotel room. And if I go over to other vendors... Who have something that I think it might interest them? Like, oh hey, you know, you seem to love Game Gear games. I have two that I've been looking to get rid of. Could I trade you for two of the games and ten bucks for that game? Like, that is totally fine. And you know, you're not taking away from the expo. You're not skirting around a booth. You're talking about a, a small amount worth of stuff, especially anything that could fit in a like a bag or something. Maybe you have to leave it out in your car. I don't know if they search bags or stuff like that, but. You know, one-off stuff like that, I would just talk to people and ask and see, but it's not a swap meet. There are I would go to different swap meet events, like big, so to summarize my word vomit, if you have a bunch of stuff, rent a booth. If you have a tiny little bit of things, or stuff that could fit in a small bag, leave it in your car and just kind of talk to people and see, but if you have a medium amount of stuff, look for swap meets and things like that. I think that's probably the best advantage, so hopefully that was a good answer. Now, over on Patreon, Colin Kenny has a second SNES that died. Their troubleshooting steps were to use original cartridges as well as the fx Pack SD2 SNES on a Super NT that worked fine, and then move those back to the original Super Nintendo, and nothing's working. And this is the second time this has happened with an original SNES. So I have two suggestions. Um, If you have the game bit, open up the SNES. But let's just assume you have nothing. I would say suggestion number one is to buy another power supply and make sure it's a good one. Get one of those triad power supplies that I always talk about because I have absolutely had official Nintendo, Super Nintendo power supplies stop working on me or intermittently stop working. One of them blew the fuse out in an SNES. So I think those are hard to open as well. So while you probably could try to crack it open and swap the capacitor, I would just buy another, I would buy a triad, a known good power supply. Now, it's also likely that you just happen to get two SNESs that their PPUs eventually died in it, which is not common, but it definitely happens. It's not shocking, but it's it's uncommon to have two in the same environment die like that unless it is something like a faulty power supply and if you're using one of those other third-party brands just definitely throw that right in the garbage that in fact that would have most likely been what what killed both of them one of those cheap three dollar aliexpress ones it's cool if you have it you know before we all learned how bad those were a lot of a lot of us bought them i think i bought at least one for an atari 2600 just to get it running and even that made a difference but Um, So that's what I would start with, because also those power supplies are a good investment. You could use them on other consoles if you switch the pigtails there. It's just a good idea to have. But I would also just open it up and take a look. Um, The one thing I've seen on tons of Super Nintendo motherboards is a bunch of leftover factory Flux, and if you don't know what you're looking for, it could sort of look like weak capacitor juice. So the easiest way to tell, not 100% surefire way, but an easy way to tell is if you see gunk all over the motherboard, including in areas that don't have any capacitors near them at all. It's probably flux left over from the factory. You could use some isopropyl to clean it off, dry it out really nice, and then and that should be it. Or or you could leave it. That's fine, too. But if you see a bunch of gunk in or around capacitors, that's always a really good indication that, hey, something's broke. You need to replace the caps. Do it before it hurts the motherboard. I haven't ever seen a Super Nintendo leak so bad that it burned through the board, but it's totally plausible that it would happen at some point and then just look for other visual things is there a ton of rust on the inside shield maybe there's a lot of humidity maybe the there's other damage or oxidation maybe other components need to be reflowed or something like that so I would definitely just start with a visual inspection to see if there's something obvious and a power supply and if you have to buy both if you have to buy the game bit and a power supply Start with the power supply because you can, as long as you have more than one console or plan on continuing to use the Super Nintendo, it's definitely going to be a worthy purchase. A total assassin had a couple of questions. First, any suggestion for a good external capture card that does uncompressed video? They've looked through the site and saw internal ones but not external, looking for that uncompressed 444 capture. So, um, there's a, a So there's some interesting wording there. Uncompressed could mean a couple of different things. Lossless could mean a couple of different things. But I think basically what you just mean is you're looking for a capture card that could capture video game signals without changing the look at all. So maybe you want to do comparison shots and you want to make sure that you're comparing the two games or two mods or whatever, and you're not comparing, you know, artifacts from compression or color compression or anything like that. Or maybe you just want really cool archival footage that you want to then edit to however you would like, but you want to start with this really good raw image to begin with. So if that's the case, external has one major issue, the bandwidth of USB. So right now, the AverMedia Live Gamer Bolt is a Thunderbolt-based solution. If your computer has a Thunderbolt port, that's going to do awesome for up to 1440p60. And I think it could do 4K60, but I think there's some limitations to that. But still, that is probably the best external card I've tested on the market. Um, as far as USB solutions go... I've seen up to 720p60 be able to handle that, but not really above it. So 1080p30 probably, but not uncompressed or lossless 444 1080p60. I've never seen that on a USB device. So if you're looking for 720p60 or lower, the um, I think there's a bunch of devices that could do it, but the Epifan DVI to USB 3.0 is the one that I've used. And I, I liked it, I thought it, it performed very well got some quirks. I don't think it's compatible with Macs, but uh, just make sure to get that exact used one. There's ones that look just like it that have different hardware that don't perform well as well at all. And they're expensive. So I would try to look for it used. But honestly, this was a battle that I had for years because I was in small apartments up until, you know, Last year less than a year ago. So having to switch to a PC a full-sized PC and a full-sized monitor Was a pretty big detriment. So I was trying anything to stay with laptops and Before the bolt came out, which was only 2020 I believe there really was nothing that I could use to do it I had to use a PC and I got a bunch of friends in the same boat and I've just told them all like stop fighting this I battled it for years get yourself a PC, get a new desk along with it, mount the PC underneath, whatever the heck you got to do, figure out a way to fit a PC into it. Everything is easier and cheaper and and runs faster when it comes to capture cards and accessories. Um, Question two, they got their hands on a PC Engine Avenue 6 pad and they think the silicone needs replacing because some of the buttons don't respond well. Wondering if me or anyone could point them in the right direction of some worthy replacements. So I've never even seen a six-button Turbo Graphics controller in person, Turbo Graphics PC Engine, whatever. So I would have to defer to anybody listening for this, but I can give basic tips. Clean the controller. I have the c- controller cleaning pages. It's one of the first pages I wrote for Retro RGB up on there, and everything still kind of stands. Disassemble absolutely everything. Anything that's not electronic, wash with the uh, you know wash with soap. Dry it with a um, compressed air then take the PCB itself and take a Q-tip or some kind of pad and isopropyl and wipe that down because you never know. Somebody could have spilled soda on that controller and it seeped in and maybe they wiped the outside down with some antibacterial wipes to get the stickiness off, but it's still weirdness on the inside. So I would just start by cleaning. Couldn't really hurt as long as you don't do something stupid like put the whole thing in the dishwasher. But uh, as long as you do it right, everything should be fine and... Who knows, maybe it'll just start working right again. But if not, you will need to find a replacement pad and I got no clue, my apologies. Maybe anybody in the chat could jump in. Daniel Martinez Gonzalez had their SNES shell crack and they had a couple of questions about it. Um, First, if they decide to repair it, is there any safe way to reinforce it? Like maybe painting the inside with some epoxy or putty that won't cause any hazard with heat. Even with the IR shields, they're not sure it's a very safe way. So it depends. If you just have a crack in it, you dropped something on it, you dropped it, whatever else, it seems like you should be able to just glue it on the inside and then paint over it. But if yours is one of those shells like I showed in the live stream where I swapped out the Retro Game Restore shell, where I basically just put a little bit of pressure and it started to crumble... It's probably done because even if you were able to do some kind of outside reinforcement it's still deteriorating from the inside out so you might just be stuck replacing the shell um, if it's minor though you could be able to preserve it that way but i would look into what chemicals mix well with abs plastic like that next if they decide to replace the case it seems the only decent options are repair transparent ones like the ones i showed in that stream but they like the original color Is there any quality replica shield with the original SNES color? I think you mean replica case. Um, No, however, this is where the community is going to be a big help. I guarantee you there are people out there with slightly yellowed shells, but not broken, not deteriorating like the ones that I showed in the stream. But I guarantee you there are people out there that have ordered the clear shell that don't know what to do with their old one. They don't want to throw it out because that's obviously a waste, but there's no point in keeping it. So you might actually be able to get a really cheap, either a cheap yellowed one that you could then paint and and design whatever you want with, that you could now take something that's yellowed and ugly and make it beautiful. So I, I love that idea. Or I'm sure there's people out there with perfectly good condition SNES shells that just wanted the clear one instead, and you could buy those. And you should be able to get those for a fair price at least. So I would check different discords uh, for pickups and sales sections, stuff like that, and see if anybody out there would be willing to trade. Or maybe somebody was on the fence about buying one of the retro gamer store shells, And now you say, hey, I'll give you X amount for your old one. And now they go, all right, cool. As soon as the new one arrives, I'll send you this. So that would be where I would start. Three, in both cases, is there good info on how to paint them properly? What type of paint, technique, number of passes, etc.? I have no clue, but I would suggest going to people that are kind of experts in it. My buddy Russ Lyman, who I've had on the podcast at least once before, paints consoles. And in fact, this is the exact scenario in which I, I really appreciate his work even more, taking a yellowed console that kind of looks ugly as is and restoring it and making it look awesome. Russ does good work. I'll leave a link to, uh, to him if you're interested, but I don't know. Maybe Russ has a video or some kind of information out there on how he does his technique, but if not, I'm sure there's artists out there that would be willing to help or already have videos on this. Once again, I got to throw in my little two cents here. You know, I don't like to see mint condition, perfect cases painted, but beat up ones. Oh yeah. I think that's amazing to, to bring, a, a, add new life to something like that. And lastly, for future proofing and other consoles, is there any kind of lacquer known to leave more or less intact the surface of the original plastic and prevent its yellowing? I don't know, but I do know that any kind of chemical that you put on plastic will have a reaction, even on a small molecular level, it will have a reaction and change the properties of at least the first couple of layers. So this is something that anybody who's into classic cars or car detailing or restoring definitely knows about. If you're into that, check out Ammo NYC on YouTube. The guy behind it, Larry, the, the videos are great, but I also love the tech behind it. But for you know switching back to retro gaming the best example i can give is there's some solution out there that if you wipe it down on a piece of plastic it kind of restores it and it doesn't make it shiny like that you know armor all finish but it kind of it does make it look better and it it is supposed to help preserve it a little bit but even if you thoroughly wipe it down after applying it it leaves like a weird film on it where like after you touch it your hands feel strange so it's one of those things where I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know what would do more harm than good. But for me personally, cleaning is the, the method that I definitely stay by. Uh, it's the, you know, the method I just talked about with the controller section. You basically just take it all apart, clean it with soap, thoroughly dry it, and that's it. And the only other thing is don't leave it in direct sunlight. So a big, beautiful, sunny room, great. But under a window with light shining through at eight hours a day, no. So that that's basically it, but hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction. Next up, Durf wanted to know if I had any recommendations for audio to Bluetooth boxes so that you could listen to non-wireless audio wirelessly through your headset. There is plenty of them on Amazon with mixed reviews and some with terrible delay, so they were just curious if I had a recommendation. No, and my recommendation for stuff like this is always buy the cheapest within reason, you know, read some reviews, don't get total garbage, but buy the cheapest one and see what you think. Because my thing with audio is always for the price. And that's a statement you're gonna hear a lot from me in the next couple months with a few videos I'm putting out to the point where you're probably gonna wanna slap me in the face every time you hear it, but it's really what you need to burn into your brain about audio anything could always be, or any audio could always be upgraded. You could always spend more to get something better. But how is the experience for the price? And the perfect example is I was in a similar situation where I wanted wireless audio for my TV and not just for like my streaming box, because I could have paired Bluetooth headset with like an Apple TV box, I wanted it for everything, for, you know, watching movies, for playing video games, whenever I just wanted to be quiet, but still wanted to play, and I found that a cheap set of RF wireless headset was, for the price, way better. Now, that was years ago, who knows what changed now, you could probably get these Bluetooth boxes much cheaper, but 6 or 7 years ago it was like 40 bucks for a, I think it was a refurbished or used or open box whatever I got but I got a great deal on it and it was totally fine. Would I call it good? No, it sounded like shit, but in the context of 40 bucks to completely solve a problem for when I just needed that moment to be quiet, loved it for the price. So same with this. I would just buy buy one of them, buy from Amazon to make sure that you can return it, but I would just try it yourself and see if it solves your issue. And just know that there's with audio, you could always go too far and too crazy. So the only other thing I would suggest is if this isn't just uh, solving a problem, I occasionally need to use this. If for whatever reason, you really want to make this your main source of audio for gaming and TV, I would spend some time doing some research on headphone amps and other things like that, because you could spend... You could spend a ridiculous amount of money just on a headphone amp, but there could be good solutions out there that you got to spend hundred and fifty bucks on, but it sounds light years better than the ten dollar solution. I think it's it's like that with DACs, and I started to show that a bit in the HDMI shootout video, how like a twenty dollar HDMI splitter with a DAC in it, in that context, for the money it was awesome but you put it next to the the ship modi deck that is actually its name ship modi then it just the modi destroyed it there's no comparing the two but i had to spend almost 200 bucks on it and then of course you can get thousand dollar two thousand dollar decks and you know whatever it's up to you if you want to spend that money but hopefully i was able to at least point you and anybody else curious in the right direction for that Adam Adam Ant said they're getting bit by the PCB bug. Do I have any recommendations for design software? They've already been convinced to go with JLCPCB because of the ads. Glad those ads were were helping. I, I really did want to make them more than just ads. But anyway, Adam said they're planning on doing very small boards and nothing too intricate. So I have two answers to this. If you think there's a chance that this could become a hobby of yours, and you start out with one or two small boards, but then you get into it, you start collaborating with other people, you start helping out on projects, trading Gerber files, posting stuff on GitHub, then I would absolutely take the time to learn KiCad. Now, I've been told that Eagle is easier. I've dabbled in all of them for a bit, but I'm not an expert, but you have to pay for Eagle whereas KiCad is open source software and it's totally free. So if you think this is even potentially has, you know, has a realistic chance of becoming a hobby, I would learn that. It's more of a learning curve, but once you're in it, everything seems to fall into place and people like it. Now, the second piece of advice, a lot of people get really aggravated with me for saying, but I still stand by it and that if you probably aren't gonna make this your hobby. You just, you wanna make one or two PCBs to solve the problem that you have. You just wanna bang them out and get them done as easy as possible. I would actually suggest Easy EDA. And I am not being paid to say this. It's my honest opinion because you're learning. you'd have to then learn the easy EDA software, which is a little bit simpler. It's more limited. You can't do nearly as much, but for basic boards, it should be totally fine. However, it links right to JLCPCB, so you press a button, sends you right to their website, and now you can just order them. And you could even tie into LCSC and get the components that you need, which is a big deal in the part shortage, right? You build a board with only seven components on it, but five of them are out of stock everywhere. If you're right there in the software, you could search to, uh, to see what components are compatible maybe there's zero of the component that you need but there's a 10,000 of another one that's slightly different size so just drop the new uh, footprint in resize it you know move the little things and then poof there you go make your PCB assembly press the order button and you're done so a lot of people get annoyed because they're like oh you're learning that one set of skill and it's useless because everybody else uses KiCad." It's all context. If you really just want to bang out a couple of boards, get them delivered, or board with assembly, I I do think Easy EDA is a a very good option, but I just, the only reason I'm careful recommending it is because I don't want to see people dig in deep, learn every option of Easy EDA, and then months later realize I should have been doing KiCad the whole time because now this is my favorite hobby and I have to relearn something from scratch. And I don't know about any of you, but for me personally, if I go in with zero knowledge of something, like in this context, if I had never used board design software, they're all kind of hard at first, and then you get used to it. But for me personally, if I get really good at uh, Adobe Premiere, I'm passable at it, but still, I've spent years of my life in it, and then I go to switch to DaVinci Resolve it's way harder to unlearn everything I learned the first time and relearn it here than it is to just learn it from scratch. So, you know, not everybody's like that. Probably a lot of people learn a lot easier than I do, but it's just one of those things that I, I wanted to be upfront and honest because, I, I, you know, the people that complain are, are correct a little bit, but honestly, if, it's, if you don't know if it's going to be a hobby, you only need to make one or two. Give Easy, ED a, Easy EDA a try and see what you think. Chris Deo is going down the road of teaching themselves how to use capture cards, OBS, Premiere Pro, etc. And they want to know, when using their RetroTink 5X, should they always set that to 1200p and let the capture card downscale, or should they always set it to 1080p for native quality? For context right now, they've been mostly capturing PlayStation and Saturn through the RetroTink 5X via RGB. So I'll answer your question, but then I definitely have some thoughts about this. First, I would just... Stick with 1080p over, so the 1080p 5X. And I I think the RetroTank 5X nails it. I would definitely use the custom profiles. And I think that should be all that you need. Custom profiles mean the custom timings, not like scanline effects. Just, you know, if you want to take the time to get it nice and crispy, use the don't leave it at generic, kind of just set it to whatever the other modes are. But I do have a couple of thoughts on this. First, 1200p versus 5X. Um, 1080p 5X via the RetroTank 5X in triple buffer mode should be compatible with everything out there. There should be zero compatibility issues, and it really truly is accurate to the original look. A lot of people gave me shit when I put out the 1080p 5X video, but funny thing is, the overscan of going to 5X and cutting off the top and bottom the explanations and examples that I showed in that video were just based on the hardware I happen to have in my apartment at the time. But now that I'm here with all of my monitors, in all honesty, most of the consumer-grade CRTs I have scan even farther past what I showed in that video. So I, I think the advantages of 5X for, for retro stuff is you scan, you're able to fill more of the screen horizontally and vertically without stretching. But it is a true representation of what you probably would have seen in most consumer CRTs. Not perfectly calibrated BVMs and PVMs, but your average consumer TV of the time. And all of these devices like the tank and the mister now allow you to raise the height or, or raise or lower the height in 1080p 5x mode, making it really easy to just get every game looking pretty much perfect in 5X mode. Now, if you were to start getting into this for archival purposes or anything else, here is one of the things, or one of the reasons I would consider direct capture. I'll start by saying direct capture is a massive pain, to the point where I don't know if I would even bother doing it for certain PlayStation games that have three different resolutions for the menu, the gameplay, and everything else. That's actually probably a good time to use the RetroTanks generic mode anyway but doing direct capture for standard genesis super nintendo nes like you know even a lot of the psx and saturn that were just one resolution i like doing it that way for the simple reason that you can have lossless captures that are very small in size because you're only capturing 240p that you could then manipulate any way you would like so you could capture a full long play of a game, and then today you could just use post-processing to scale it to 1080p 5X, put it on YouTube, you're good to go. But if you ever wanted to do comparisons, you could resize them in different ways. You can go to 4K if you wanted to. You could, If it's a PlayStation game that fills the screen top to bottom, so one of the rare moments that you don't want overscan, you could, you could uh, scale it a different way. So the closest thing to that without the incredible pain of doing direct capture would be the open source scan converter in 480p it's weird because then you couldn't take that and make it 5x because you know two doesn't go into five one goes into five but it's it's still good enough so that you could uh you could manipulate it in a way where you have a small original file that you could then process in post but that's probably not always what you're looking to do i think just capturing with the tink 5x is a and more than good enough. I just wanted to add that out there depending on how deep you want to go into this project and more importantly what you want to do with the footage in the long term. Do so you want to archive it and then, you know, eventually make videos about it, just upload it as long plays, whatever. All of it's a good idea, but your effort should vary depending on what the end result goal is. Only other things to add, OBS is awesome. The capture card that you listed is fine, but as you're going to get into this If you start to get more excited about it, you're going to want better capture cards that will allow you to do things like lossless 1080p without compressing the colors or anything like that. So that's when you might want to look into the Datapath stuff. I always buy it used, but hey, if you win the lotto, buy yourself a brand new Datapath card for a couple grand. They're amazing. I really like the Live Gamer 4K. The more I've used that card, the more I realize what I missed the first review around. It was performing really well. And of course, the Bolt, I talked about that before. Um, but you don't need to upgrade your capture card. I'm sure the one you have is performing well enough. I just wanted to throw that out there in case this becomes a a more serious hobby for you. And the only other thing to add is you mentioned Premiere Pro as your editing software. If you already know Premiere or you already have to have the subscription for whatever reason, perfect. I use it. I like it. But DaVinci Resolve is free. And it's if you're going to spend the time to learn this just like i was talking about kicad i would stick with the free one because you never have to worry about dealing with any of this I actually tried to switch to Resolve, but for these weekly videos, I have such an efficient workflow from the time I'm done recording to the time I kind of wrap it all up, that for me to lose 5-10 minutes by going to a software that I can't use the same tricks to get it through, it just wasn't worth it. Now, DaVinci Resolve has had two uh, revisions since the last time I tried it, so maybe I can get somebody like you know Epos Vox one day to do a live stream with me where he teaches me how to use Resolve, but... That's one of those things where if you're learning this to start and you're not, this isn't a weekly thing, you know, meaning like this isn't your job, right? You, you could you edit this when you have time. Spending a few extra minutes on free software is probably a good idea. And the only other thing I would add is if you're going to get into capture and streaming, subscribe to Epos' channel because he really is the stream professor. I, I've learned so much from him and, you know, he's just good at a bunch of stuff, but the stream professor, definitely, without a doubt, subscribe. Well, everybody, how'd I do? Did I still pull off the same enthusiasm and positive energy I like to, to put into these videos or did it seem like somebody who was doing it for the second time? I tried my best because I really do love doing these. I like hanging out and interacting with all of you, but that was nuts. I can't believe I made that stupid mistake again. It's been years, but yeah, it's another hard lesson learned. Zero changes in my setup, yet yeah, no audio this time. Anyway, if uh, if you want to ask any question for these Q&As, please just ask wherever it is that you support in your latest Q&A post. The way all these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question in an older post. Plus, as you see here, I like scrolling through in real time and normally answering these questions as they're popping in my brain for the first time. It feels more real that way. Hopefully this didn't feel forced or anything like that, but... Uh, I just I think it's a lot of fun to do it that way. It kind of feels like I'm doing like a a hang session with with everybody out here asking questions and stuff like that. So um, and if you're a fan of this stuff and you would like to support, please check out the support page on the website. You could sign up for any of the monthly services, leave tips or just buy the same exact stuff from Amazon and eBay that you were going to buy anyway for the same price. But we get a few pennies on each sale for affiliate codes. So thank you all so much. And I will see you next week.